Recently, my wife and I rediscovered Stardew Valley. The developers released an update on the Switch which allowed us to play split-screen. For those who may not know, Stardew Valley is a neat little gem in which you work throughout the seasons on a homestead inherited from your late grandfather, working to make it the best it can be, engaging with townspeople, supporting family-owned businesses, and healing the dilapidated community center with the magical nature of the surrounding life. That night, time escaped us. The next morning, we were meant to visit family, helping with what needed to be done as they worked in preparation for upcoming changes. And in our fun, we didn't realize until 3 a.m. just how much we were enjoying our time as husband and wife, playing together until the wee hours of the night on our little homestead. We fell into a nice little groove. Every morning, Megan and I watched the weather, praying for rain, and watched the psychic scrying into our fortunes. We watched the chef teaching us new recipes and watched the surveyor show us the lay of the land. We would leave, she would go about watering all the plants as I made my way to the sea, fishing for daily wages. The spring began with clearing out the old to make way for the new. By summer, we had already planned, plotted, and tilled a nice lot. Lost in building our humble abode, when Megan pointed out the time in surprise, asking, where is the time gone? It's already 3 a.m. Is there any point in even going to sleep? Dumbfounded, I agreed with her. Not when we have to wake up at five o'clock. We were both quiet, letting the silence saturate our conversation in significance. Piddling for a moment, as she finished tending the garden and began walking toward a clearing to plot our barn, I just reeled in a catch, cast my hook again to see, and said, did we just agree to stay awake all night? And she, finding humor, replied, yeah, I think we did. And so we left our house at 7 a.m., enjoyed the experience of working with family, visiting hers first, then visiting mine. We were awake for 37 hours, not falling asleep until around 11 p.m. the next day. And in that time, I experienced something so interesting. With the days blending together as they had, we enjoyed our experiences, feeling out the life we shared together, considering the beauty of how two families are so entwined in uttering I do, two words spoken by two expressions of existence, to transform themselves, becoming husband and wife, forever changing the course of history in love, the culmination of being, manifesting into reality the bonds of matrimony, an expression of love unique to all, yet such a familiar scent of ethereal radiance permeating through to the very depths of reality, weaving together the fabric of time and space immemorial. How utterly incredible the life and potential created in the union of man and woman, each born from their like, who they themselves were born in the union of divine convergence, birthing a third ad infinitum. These two similar structures interlocking the systemic complexity in the simple phrase, I love you, genuinely the very essence of existence. And so today at the locksmith, I'm going to recant the most grand tale of love and strife as told through the lens of Egyptian spirituality. Their cosmogony will provide us a nice outline as we embark on understanding and conceptualizing the scale of our reality within the manifold unveiling of our universe as it unfolds into the timeless manifestation of love. Within the Egyptian mythos, these ancient tales are far-reaching and disparate. If you believe spirituality is simply a thing of the past, I have a question for you. What on earth are you mythic? 
Aristotle once said, it is a mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. The word myth etymologically shares its roots in use of reference to speech, thought, words, discourse, conversations, stories, sagas, tales, and quite simply anything delivered by word of mouth. Now, I am familiar with the belief claiming that a myth is simply a word to be used in reference to untrue stories, rumors, and imaginary or fictitious objects or individuals, a term unfortunately utilized to delegitimize proclamations and write off belief systems whose significance may be difficult to grasp. And yet it's funny, the same people in fervent dogmatism clinging to their mythic prejudices shame others for their beliefs in abstract theoretical ideas. And of course, those who are shamed are like to respond in turn as evil begets evil. It makes no difference, both myth and math only provide significant results when the representative vehicles or symbols called variants have been properly contextualized. Neither one realizing they're of the same ilk, fanatically obsessed with castigating others, beholden to their own theoretical constructs, abstract algorithms, and scientific formulas of expression, both protest in fear of the other, screaming out their shame and their anguish, fueled by a meaningless suffering in a hell they've yet to acknowledge as they unknowingly engage in the wailing and gnashing of teeth because it is easier to kill a man than to compromise their ignorance. Both fear to accept the other because they've built their self-identification upon a basis of ignorance and defiance toward the other. To accept and integrate spells death to their maliciously maligned and malignant identification with the group ideology devolving into tribalistic warmongering as both parties continue to throw their time into the growing sea of dissonance. At this point, it doesn't even matter whether the foundational argument is a battle of man versus woman, black versus white, Republican versus Democrat, conservative versus progressive, left versus right, or myth versus math. It's an unsustainable us versus them mentality. Just a bunch of algae qwerty alphabet soup squads saddled to a commode with the runs, arguing in a communal stall over whose denominational brand of lukewarm recipe tastes the best, and no one's eating their damn dinner because they'd honestly prefer a finely seasoned steak. It's like a man trying to build a home for his family, becoming fascinated with ideas and symbols, blueprints and placeholders, sacrificing the building for the blocks forgetting the significance of what he was pursuing and trying to build a home, now standing with his toes in the sand and sea at his back, unable to make sense of anything as the sun sets, slowly sinking beneath the edges of the sea, shadow growing ever larger, disguising the impression left by the foundational cornerstone, the one piece which was cast out to the very sea he turned his back on. Shadow now becoming one with the very darkness encroaching on all sides, unable to properly hold together his diminishing field of vision. The sea swallows the sun as he contextualizes. In conclusion, as he conceptualizes, suffering. What hell is this whose ears fall deaf, swept out to sea in currents of cleft? A gasping inhale, sinking salt in lungs deep. Primordial chaos is longing for sleep. Do you long to the embrace of motion still, with eyes so raw and stomach without fill? Now, without further ado, I'm Jay Castle, and this 
is the Locksmith Podcast. In a time before time, where the world were as an infinite expanse of dark and directionless waters, there was the Ogdawad within Tohu Babohu. Those who were always being simultaneously, whose being is indirectly tied to one another in the union of their masculine and feminine aspects. Noon and Nunet, deities of chaos and water together as primordial seas of inactivity. A watery expanse lacking solidity, paralleled with inactivity, abyssal and deep. Noon and Nunet are known in the presence of a sacred cistern, calm lakes, and underground streams. They are the surrounding bubble in which the sphere of life is encapsulated, representing the deepest mystery of all that is or may be unknown. They are the source of all that appears in a differentiated world, encompassing all aspects of sacred, earthly, and profane. Heh and Huhet, infinity and eternity, together as empty space, an unending time lacking time. It is envisioned that chaos is infinite in that creation is finite. As such, Heh became the god of time and infinity, and is believed to be that which holds up the solar barge of Ra as god of fire. While Heh is the explicit and active aspect ruling infinity, Huhet is the implicit passive aspect as the form eternity. Kek and Kuket, darkness and duality together as an infinite darkness in an enduring lack of light. The two are known as the razor up of light and razor up of night. Kek, god of obscurity hidden in the darkness, and Kuket, goddess of twilight, inception of abstract dualistic abduction. Amun and Amunet, hiddenness and obscurity, a wanderer lacking direction. Amun is the hidden one, invisible all of all, the nothing in observation of rhythm, the self-created, transcendental par excellence. Amunet, primeval existence before creation, beneficent shadow bringing together all a pair to Amun. From therein did the Ogdawad within Tohu Vabohu, essence of nothingness where chaos abound, unseen in darkness eternal, usher a great writhing and stir primeval existence. From within the coils of bondage was the greater malefect formed in the coming together of that which was without form, void, unending, and unseen, gathered in all pairs a spirit of inexistence in existence. The great serpent Apophis. From the embodiment of chaos had Apophis given way for the implication to be. And from within the coils of this great other did the first creator god arise, Ra. Regularly known from within Atom, invocation of all matter as concentrated in the creator before creation, Apophis, so as to become one again with his second nature, embraced Atom so tightly that in the process of unfurling did Kepri, scarab god of becoming, break free to be reborn in Atom. The fission within and without the undivided all of existence the gradual blossoming fractal of existential significance inseparable entities as creation. Atom, the complete one, finisher of the world who returns to the essence of the void in the end of creative cycles. Atom is the underlying substance of the world. That which all deities and things to be are as Atom, the light of Ra, as they are of his flesh or Ka. 
from the noon did we see the void from existence of inexistence did the first god of creation arise from the heart of the coils of the stirring spirit of the waters at the top of the mound atom the god who by effort of will uttered his own name and brought order to heaven and earth overcoming apophis and just as the ogdawad were in essence of the noon from potential of atom apophis implicating ra to be so too does atom ra grant the world and all things existence as aeneid with atom peering amid chaos spoke his children into being shu and tefnet shu meaning to be dry masculine word for life and ankh god of peace lions air and wind force of preservation spouse and brother to goddess tefnet tefnet meaning to corrode an opposition to dryness as moisture that which brings about change in creation of time feminine word for what is right and maat goddess of moisture dew and rain together formed to provide the fundamental principles of human existence from there atom brought about zep tepi the first time in creation of shu dry air and tefnet corrosive moist air life and justice from there did the twins separate the sky and waters from which they embraced their father atom leaving him they explored the noon the expanse in effort to understand as atom watched his children through his mind's eye he observed their strength wane as they ventured further out and so sent forth the divine power of his eye to enlighten their way home however atom could not be nor see the return of his children without the light of his eye and in his socket he was renewed as his eye therein regrew when his first eye returned she was in fury at the one who had taken her place desperately working to destroy this regrowth who had assumed her position but atom in gratitude for her divine service placing her upon his brow the form of ureus as royal protector and in the heart of atom rose the mound a structure reminiscent to a pyramid and with his children brought it into being in this gathering up of such did shu and tefnet produce in atom geb and net geb god of the earth dry land and father of snakes whose laughter creates earthquakes through him do crops grow as father of snakes those sons of the earth geb is often feared geb is the fertility and danger as earth in potential embraced with net net goddess of the sky stars cosmos mothers and astronomy mirror to the watery sea she is the star covered nude woman arching over earth bearing the water upon her head with geb did ra finally find rest as nut swallowed ra every night for coming between her embrace with geb but ra reborn in every morning and so shu their father had deigned to provide space so that geb and net in emptiness could give rise for differentiation 
for in the union of Geb and Nut did they conceive, and in their separation with Shu did their father afford potential for their many star children to break free and be born. From Geb and Nut were then born Isis, goddess of the experience of birth and magic, and her husband Osiris, god of order and fertility, and Nephthys, goddess of the experience of death and mundane, and her husband Seth, god of disorder and deserts. As eldest son, god of order, Osiris was husband to Isis and beloved by Nephthys. As Osiris, full of seed, paired with Isis, nourishing life, the first seeds of creation landed upon the black earth, and Egypt came to be. Isis, drawing the waters of the heavenly Nile, gave life to the land, as they created for themselves a divine garden, the fertile crescent paradise, where Nephthys soon came to be with them, showing preference to the juxtaposition of Seth's harsh and unforgiving arid desert. As such, Isis discovered her husband, loved her sister, and had relations with Nephthys in mistaking her for his wife, revealed to her in the form of a Memelo garland. Nephthys then bore a child from her union with Osiris, and in fear of Seth, abandoned him. When Isis learned Nephthys abandoned the child from birth, she went out in search of the child, whom she found aided by dogs with great trouble, and adopted, naming him Anubis. Isis raised Anubis to become her guard and ally as judge of the dead, protector of tombs, cycle pomp to be, guardian of the scales. Seth was jealous of the potential owed to Osiris, and for the love and loyalty Nephthys bore to him, and went to summoning sandstorms so fierce as to turn the fertile black earth garden paradise into a desert wasteland. When he had learned of Anubis, he festered, setting his sights upon the destruction of his brother Osiris. Osiris, having incurred the wrath of his jealous, anarchic little brother Seth, was murdered, and Seth went about dismembering Osiris into fourteen parts, spreading thirteen of his pieces to the four corners of the world, and placing the fourteenth in a box, sealed with lead, and threw into the Nile. With that, the god of order was undone, and Seth, god of disorder, assumed the mantle as new king of the world, lone ruler of a desert hell in the shifting sands. It was then Isis and Nephthys came to gather the disparate elements of Osiris, but they struggled to find the final piece cast in the Nile, which flowed to the sea. Isis finally found this piece embedded in the trunk of a salt cedar tree, which held up the roof in the palace of Bibelos, the well of the source of God. Isis then, with the invocation of Anubis, began the process of embalming with Nephthys as protection. Osiris's organs were given as an offering to Anubis, who then bound tightly the eldest son of Geb and Nut. Finally, Isis sending away her sister and Anubis was alone. And like when drawing down the waters of the heavenly Nile giving life to Egypt, Isis sprinkled the waters of life upon her husband's corpse and began fanning life into Osiris through her magic, restoring the vitality of her husband for one night 
to conceive their son, Horus. As the fatality of Osiris left, his physical form now pieced together was given proper burial in the desert. Isis then flew away to the hidden waters of the marshes in the Nile Delta until Horus the Younger was of age. As Horus grew, Isis taught Horus of the death of his father at the hand of his uncle, Seth. And Horus vowed to avenge his father when he came of age. And so, as time passed, Horus the Younger, god of the morning sun, silence and secrets, confidentiality and earliest light, came into his zenith as Horus the Elder, son of the creator in light of being. Seth, now confronted with the son of his brother, sought to prove his dominance over Horus, contending with him in various contests, racing boats to physical fights. Horus was victorious on every account, but Seth had the favor of the creator god, for the role of his force proved crucial in defeating Apophis. Finally overcome with his need for dominance, Seth sexually abuses Horus, an act involving the major aspect of Seth's forceful and potent, indiscriminate and pervasive sexual desire, meant not only to degrade his rival, but also prove his dominance by insemination. Horus thwarts Seth by secretly catching the semen in his hands and casting them both into the Nile. Horus then retaliating for Seth's violation and attempted vie for dominance in sexual contests, spreads his semen on Seth's favorite lettuce leaves, losing his left eye in the process. And so Seth, in consuming the lettuce, becomes impregnated with his rival's seed, losing his right testicle, and as a result gives birth to the lunar disc, left eye of Horus, in which Thoth assumes his own with a disc placed upon his head, stepping in as god of wisdom and equilibrium, writing and judgment, lord of sacred knowledge and keeper of the scales of justice to mediate the dispute once and for all. It is here, in this final contest weighed upon the divine scales of justice, Seth makes his claim to be dominant over Horus, speaking out. He calls forth his semen, which answers from the Nile, Seth discovers his attempt to inseminate Horus has failed. Then Horus, stepping up, calls his own, which answers from inside the belly of the beast, and the feud comes to its conclusion. Horus crowned rightful pharaoh of Egypt, and in that had his eye restored, journeyed to Duat, realm of the underworld, and with the help of his mother, transfigured the eldest son of Geb and Nut, Osiris. Isis opening the mouth of her husband to let in the breath of life, and Horus, offering his left eye, restored the essence of his father, and in his resurrected form, Osiris became lord of the underworld. Meanwhile, Seth, having had his right testicle restored in the process, journeyed out to assume the position as a royal protector, standing upon the prow of Ra's barge, spearheading the journey to ensure the defeat of Apophis in every night, so that Kepri might continue the experience of God as becoming, concluding the inception and cosmogonic ordering of the Aeneid the nine principal deities of Egyptian mythology from which Horus became the divine link between man and myth, the physical and phenomenal.
the first pharaoh. In summation, the cosmogony of Egyptian mythology is a beautiful tale and grand expression. From the Agdawad, the essence and awareness of nothingness, primordial sea of infinite darkness and eternal wondering and obscurity, the creator god Atom, by sheer force of will, denied the primordial serpent of inexistence, birthing a separation of sea and sky in Shu and Tefnet, creating time in the depth of that which preserves and that which corrodes, which is to say, the sheer force of will to be or to exist is a proclamation indirect, defying in existence and that which is a purveyor of such, which gives way to the inception of preservation and corrosion in the will to preserve the finite creation through the chaos of time's corrosion, also giving way for the division of sea and sky as an implication of preservation is the formation of background and foreground, what you see and what surrounds it. Through time, the formation of Earth comes into being in embrace with the cosmos as Geb and Nut, where Shu divides them in time as an atmosphere comes upon the Earth, separating the Earth from the cosmos, fostering the potential of life between their embrace. As life began populating the Earth in the manifestation of the experience of birth, presented in Isis, married to the fertility and abundance of order, presented in Osiris, and the experience of death, presented in Nephthys, married to the deprivation and impotence of disorder, presented in Seth, a spiraling occurred, when the being of order confused the experience of death with the experience of birth, presenting the manifestation of that which proves to be a guide for those in the afterlife, understood as Anubis. This experience of death in abundance serves the role to provide protection to the experience of birth in Isis who also raises such a guide into being, found with help from dogs who use their nose to track scent or originations. So, it's understandable how abundance may lead to confusing the sisters of experience by tracking the scent of order, resulting in the deprivation of fertility in order, as Seth learning the experience of birth is protected by the union of the fertility in the abundance of experienced death serves as a guide for the afterlife, casts the fractured being of order to the farthest reaches of the earth, casting the final piece in the Nile after sealing it into a coffin with lead, where, in time, the experience of birth protected by the experience of death engages in the restorative piecing together of order to abundance finding the final piece resting within the trunk of a grand tree upholding the well of the source of God. Isis, experience of birth, sending away the protection and guidance of experience of death and her union with order is impregnated by the vitality of Osiris in the magic of the restoration of order. Where the experience of birth then flees hiding in the Nile until the union of the experience of birth and order gives way for the divine ordering principle to be born. Beginning first as the silent and morning sun, Horus is taught of the disruption to order by the experience of birth due in part to the union of order and the experience of death married to the deprivation of order and awareness of such grows into his vows to eventually, as the son of order, become the divine ordering principle. 
As divine ordering principle, Horus came to confront the deprivation of order, Seth. There were many contests to prove who was truly the rightful ruler or the principal measurement of what one ought to be aligning themselves with, that which creates order or that which creates disorder. And in every contest, the divine ordering principle is successful, but the deprivation of order is favored by the all of creation for its role in depriving the order of singular in existence represented in Apophis. This is what is represented in his attempt to inseminate Horus. For Seth argues that which deprives the singular order of in existence is what gives way for the ordering principle to be, as if to say, without me, you wouldn't exist, you couldn't exist. I am the conqueror of in existence. I am what killed your father. I am the deprivation of order. I am the impotence in disorder. I am what gives way for your potential. But the divine ordering principle casts this attempt away in denial, in secret, losing his hand in the process, spreading the seed of the divine ordering principle upon the favored food of that which deprives order, a let us leave, losing his left eye in the process, which Seth consumes, inseminating him with the seed of the divine ordering principle, losing his right testicle in the process giving way for the wisdom in equilibrium and keeper of the sacred knowledge and scales of just is, as represented in Thoth, to be born from the forehead or the mind of that which deprives order in consumption of the divine ordering principle, assuming ownership of the lunar disk that is birthed in reconciliation. As the keeper of sacred knowledge and scales of just is mediates the dispute in the most explicit manifestation of the contest, Seth's semen answers from denial, and Horus's answers from the belly of the beast. As if to say, I denied your claim, casting away my hand in response as you sow your seeds of impotent disorder. For when you engage in the act of deprivation to order, you utilize the divine ordering principle to serve yourself in the formation of your own preferred order. It is I what gives way for you to express your potential, and only through me do you defy the death of inexistence. Bringing the feud to an end, as Horus, the divine ordering principle, is crowned the pharaoh, fairest arrow receiving his eye, and grants vision to his father, whose life and essence is restored by the experience of birth and the divine ordering principle as the fertility and abundance of order became the ruler of the underworld. It is now paralleled as the process restores Seth's testicle as he assumes his position on the prow of Ra's solar barge, juxtaposing in parallel with the divine's eye return becoming royal protector on the brow of Atom in the form of the serpent Uraeus, concluding the inception and cosmogenic ordering of the Aeneid insulation. You know, it's funny that we call the brother of our parents uncool. I mean, for all intents and purposes, good parents are understood in the formative years to be almost set apart from reality. How many jokes reference the childish claims that mom isn't a person, she's mom, and my dad can beat up your dad. Quite literally, parents consist as those who prior to thine own existence were. And as we grow, we've come to question their existence prior to thine own. How did we come to be? 
the scientific community suggests in quite a humorous projection, mind you, that we came from nothingness in light of the Big Bang. <laughs> Jokes aside, these expressions of experience in the formative years are crucial to children engaging in the formation of the eternal guiding archetypal principles, saturating their lives in the generational recursive essence of being expressed in myth. Does that make sense? Probably not. It's the whole damn dollar. 